Welcome back to Working Overtime, the wings to regular workings Beatles. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. So what are we going to be talking about today, Isaac? Well, June, I wanted to revisit something that we spoke about a couple weeks ago on regular old working, the issue of confidence in your work and in your life. What is it? Why is it useful? How do you get it? Is it fakeable? Now, I know that you are English, June, Mm. and thus you are culturally allergic to expressing any sort of confidence overtly. But I have to ask, are there things in your daily professional and creative life that you feel confident about? Yes. Isaac, I am one of the world's greatest copy editors. I have a lot of confidence there. I'm a creative fact checker, which sounds like a contradiction, but absolutely is not. And I think I was an empathetic editor in that I was able to make a writer's work better while minimizing their alienation from the final product. What about you, Isaac? Yeah, well, before we get to our answers, I just want to know, that wasn't too painful for you, was it, to admit that you were good at things? I know it's tricky. Remember, I lived in the U.S. for 40 years, and I, I have an, a U.S. passport. So when I needed to tap into my confidence, I just thought about that blue passport. <laughs> you just thought New York, not Edinburgh. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, there are things that I'm confident about. Like, I do genuinely think that I am a good writer at this point. You know, I don't know that I was always a good writer, <laughs> but I've worked really hard at it, and I'm a good writer. I don't think I'm necessarily the world's greatest writer, but, you know, I'm good at what I do. I also think that I'm good at synthesizing ideas. That's a thing that is like a particular skill of mine. And I can work quickly when I need to, which is actually really helpful when I'm trying to figure out how to structure uh, my schedule as it gets more and more complicated. Like there are times where I can say, all right, I've only got one hour to do these edits, but I actually know I can do these edits in one hour. And so I'm just going to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And actually, something that you just said that you, I think you said the word structure in passing. And it reminded me that, like, there are also things that I feel like I, it's not only that I lack confidence in them, but I sort of think I'm bad at them. I'm not good at structure. I'm not good at headlines, for example. And I think that's kind of relevant because, you know, we're going to be talking about faking it and all that, but I'm not sure that you can. Like, I am so convinced that I'm not good at headlines or that I I can't, you know, do an outline that there's nothing about confidence that can break through that. The shell is so hard. We'll talk about how to work with that shell, even if that shell still exists in just a bit. Do not worry. This isn't going to be a bragathon. We're going to talk about the nitty gritty of confidence and how it works when we come back. Hey, listeners, just wanted to remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or as the kids are calling it these days, to follow our show. And also, perhaps you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus. You will get bonus segments of shows like this one, full extra bonus episodes of shows like Decoder Ring, and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll get full access behind the paywall at Slate.com. To sign up, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, back to the show. You know, when we say confidence, I feel like there are kind of two kinds, Mm. right? Earned and unearned. The first, the earned kind, 
It can only come from practice, from working hard at something, learning what you are good at and what you're not good at within it. You're an empathetic editor, but you're not great at headlines or whatever it is. (laughs) You know, it is not actually about achievements. It's not about awards. It's not about reviews. It's not about external gratification. Although, believe me, those are wonderful (laughs) and they can help. It's really about self-knowledge and that can only come from coming through a bunch of difficult situations and learning a lot about yourself. And that's true whether you're writing an article or you're playing the clarinet, right? Yes, and it's interesting that you bring up playing a musical instrument because a piece that I edited many years ago, I actually looked it up just a moment ago and it was nearly a decade ago, really made this point very forcefully in a way that I've never forgotten. It was a travel piece by Elizabeth Eves and Elizabeth went off to Sevilla to learn flamenco and in one part of the series, she talked about the insights that she had gotten from having spent 10 years learning and practicing ballet, something she was really devoted to. And the last paragraph of the piece included these sentences, quote, it taught me a lesson I think is crucial. Some kids get it from music and others get it from sports, but a lot never seem to get it at all. Being very, very good at something is very, very hard. The upside of knowing you may never have the talent to pull something off is that if you do pull it off, you know it's no illusion. In other words, putting in the work is what makes the achievement feel good and what reassures you that any success you might have isn't a fluke or just plain luck. And honestly, it kind of a profound level, internalizing that idea made me put more effort into trying to be a good writer because it isn't all just some throw of the dice. Yes, no, that's that's totally right. That's totally right. I mean, I think that people have talents. Do you mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do believe talent is real. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's what you were exposed to as a kid. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's, you know, the God speaking through you. <laughs> I have no idea. But I do think that there are things that innate's a weird word to say, but by the time that you're an adult that you have an edge on, right? Yeah. But the rest of it, And even those things you are talented in, those are trainable and those are improvable. And you can get from not that great to mediocre to good to very good to great through, you know, working hard at something through practicing it. And the the confidence in that ability comes from that. I mean, I, I tell this story sometimes. My childhood best friend, who I'm still very close with, was a musical genius. He was just a prodigy from from birth, you know, in that when I met him in third grade, you know, if he heard a song, he could sit down at the piano and just play it, wow. right? And I knew I was never going to be able to do that. And I still can't. My ear is not great, right? And it actually was, uh, in some ways, very discouraging for my learning piano because I just knew I would never be as good as he was. I sort of took the wrong lesson out of that, which is this guy's probably destined for a professional music career, but I can do something else and work at something and get good at it too, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, there is, of course, the other kind of confidence, which is unearned confidence. Now, we normally use this phrase as an insult, right? He has a lot of unearned confidence. (laughs) It's like another term for arrogance. But I actually think unearned confidence is really important in your creative life, because particularly at the beginning of a process, you have no fucking clue how it's going to turn (laughs) out, right? You just don't know. But if all you do is second guess it and your abilities, you're just never going to move forward. 
You know, you'll just dither. You just spend all your time being like, oh, am I good enough? Is this good enough? Is this right? You know, like to take a hyperbolic example of every time I'm going to send out an interview request, I'm thinking it's probably going to piss off the person I'm emailing. I'd never send one and we would never be able to make this show. Yeah, you're right. But I also think that it would be very unlikely that someone who truly felt that amount of self-doubt would find themselves in a position where they had to make interview requests to big time guests. As you say, a basic level of confidence is a requirement to kind of move on to that, well, that next stage, but you could say up the career ladder or up the achievement ladder. I do think that's true, but I do think I had to learn how to be comfortable sending interview requests and be confident in that. And that actually came from earlier, which was when I was doing The World Only Spins Forward, the book that Dan Coyce and I co-wrote about Angels in America. You know, we interviewed over 250 people and we interviewed everyone from people who run B&Bs but did the play in college, you know, to Meryl <laughs> yeah. Streep. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, you, I had to get really, really comfortable with sending those interview requests. And at first, it actually, like, I was really... I just sort of didn't know what I was doing emotionally. I mean, you know, it was it was a rough experience in a weird way. And it's only through having gone through that and faking confidence then that I actually have confidence in it now. Oh, totally. And I, I have to admit here that for all I'm like, no, you would never have succeeded is I feel pretty good about making email requests, but it is almost impossible for me to make a cold telephone call. So I totally understand what you're talking about. But... I don't know. I don't know quite how I feel about this because, of course, telling yourself, you know, stories to push yourself to do something is one thing. And then acting overconfident in your dealings with other people is another. And I've definitely worked with people who I felt were displaying unearned confidence. And generally it was people who hadn't put the work in, you know, who clearly didn't understand the expectations or the system, but acted as if they knew better than well, you know, me. And that might involve, you know, filing insultingly sloppy copy or to pick a very banal example, people who would demand that I change a Slate style rule because they wanted something to appear a different way from the way Slate did it because they just knew what the right way was and figured that we were just ignorant. We just never met someone as smart as this person. And so just, you know, didn't know yet. And, you know, I just could not stand that kind of... People who acted with the confidence or even auteur of seasoned pros when they, they just clearly didn't understand the basics of how, you know, this world that they were pretending to know so much about, they didn't know the basic part of how it worked. Yeah, I, I'm glad you bring that up. And I will say that I'm sure that at some point in my early career, I was like those people that 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 you were talking about, but in a theater setting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, internally, yes, right? Like yes. externally, you know, you want to be a reasonable person. You want to try to get along with people. You want to be kind. That's true, whether you're early career or a grandmaster, you yeah, know, that's yeah. just about putting the right energy out into the world. I'm really talking about how to fake it on the on the inside, you know? I think, again, listeners who heard our episode with Sook Panu might have heard me tell this story. But, you know, when Dennis Johnson came to the University of Minnesota when I was a grad student there, he said that if he hadn't convinced himself that the book he was working on would win the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, both of them, <laughs> he couldn't sit down to write it. You know, which he said that and he was laughing, but he was also telling the truth. Of course, it's much easier to say that and to think that when you have, in fact, already won the <laughs> National Book Award, which he did. Yeah. But it's much harder to say that at the beginning or even the middle of your career. So how do you have confidence when 
maybe you haven't earned it yet. Maybe you're not a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. Maybe you're working on your first book, but you have to have confidence that you can get all the way to the end of it. Yeah. Honestly, Isaac, this is something I still struggle with when it comes to writing. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into a complete funk when I'm, you know, just having trouble expressing an idea and, you know, I'm just pulling my hair and then I do a stupid thing and I read something, something that has been published after the author has gone through their own struggles that's been edited, that's been rewritten and had however many back and forths. And it seems so much better to me that it makes me feel dispirited, even though I know all those things I just said. You know, I'm comparing my work in progress with something that has been polished to a fairly well, but every single time it gets me. So I still struggle with this a lot. Yeah, I think everyone does. And and you really brought up one of the chief ways that an artist can torment themselves, yes. which is to compare their work in progress with someone else's polished, finished edited, thought about work, you know, my first draft of a screenplay (laughs) to Citizen Kane or whatever it is, right? That way paralysis lies. One thing that I find very helpful here, and this is a trick that kind of came out of my method research, is behaving as if. I think the phrase as if is really powerful. Uh, It's a powerful phrase in acting where it often gets called the magic if. (laughs) And how the magic if works is this. Okay, June. Mm. I don't want to presume anything here, but as far as I know, you have never been a prince whose father was murdered by his uncle, and that uncle then went on to marry your mother. Oh, no. I, I'm just going to assume. Didn't marry my mother, no, no. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Only murdered only murdered your father. This is back in your old princeling days yes, in yes. Seattle. Yes. But, you know, how do you start to emotionally relate to that? Well, one way you do it is you go, okay, but if I was in that situation— what would that feel like? Yeah. How would I behave? What would be going on? You know, And so to use a case like my silly interview request example above, it might be, you know, okay, emailing this big deal director and asking for an interview is really nerve wracking to me. But, you know, like if I was working for Fresh Air, would it be nerve wracking to me? No. You know, first of all, I wouldn't be doing it on my own behalf. I'd be doing it for Terry Gross. Second of all, we're a really famous show, you know, and you sit down and you start to draft that email and then you edit it so you don't come across like a jerk <laughs> and then you send it. Have you ever tried anything like that? Well, I've tried something similar, I guess, which is the imagined conversation with a person who isn't responding to an interview request or an article pitch. Oh, I so like that. Sometimes I will imagine myself yelling, do you know who I am? And I hope I would never utter those immortal words out loud to another human being. But it's actually a useful question because sometimes we are kind of making a cheeky request. Like recently, I had to ask the publicist for a very in-demand writer slash personality to do an interview in a ridiculously narrow time window. And I knew it was cheeky. And so the tone I took in that email was, I think, appropriately apologetic. But sometimes when people don't respond to an email or they say, no, they're being idiotic because do you know who I am? In other words, either side in a conversation can demonstrate inappropriate or unearned confidence. So it's a matter of trying to kind of get a bit of distance and look at a situation objectively and figure out who, if anyone, is in the wrong. So sometimes it might be me, but it definitely isn't always. Okay, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story out of school here, Ooh. but I give Kevin, our producer, permission to put it in the final edit. When we were doing The World Only Spins Forward, I wrote to a British actor who had been in Angels in America. I wrote to his 
publicity team, right? And they shunted me to an intern who was like, can you provide more information about your outlet slate.com? What is its monthly readership and stuff? And I forwarded this question to Dan and he sent me a very sternly worded email that I then rephrased for the intern. But it was like, we never got through to the person they were, they were filming something in Iceland or something like that. But it's like, you know, we just having that moment of like, what are you talking about? Yeah. What is like child? Could you please put me in touch with an actual adult? So I've definitely had that experience. Yeah. Yep. Another place, of course, where this comes up is taking those big old creative swings within a project. How do you give yourself permission to have your novel go backwards in time or, you know, have have no paint in your painting or <laughs> shoot your movie in one long take? You know, and to a certain extent, you do have to just give yourself that permission. But I'm wondering for you if you've ever had this issue of just having to be like, well, if I don't do this, no one else is going to. So I'm just going to. You know, I haven't. That to me is the province of the truly talented or the truly delusional. That kind of full, mad, rip up the rule book experimentation is way out of my comfort zone. As I said earlier, I really reckon my skills as a copy editor, and that's all about applying the rules and treating the rule book as this amazing ultimate source of truth. In other words, I'm kind of a narc. So, uh, are you a shoot the moon kind of guy, Isaac? I really want to be, yeah. you know, I do think that I'm somewhat of a left-brained rule-bound person as well. To me, like it's also about which ambitions of mine line up with my skills, which I think have to do with ambition of the the thought involved and the precision of it and the structure of it and things like that and not necessarily about like doing the book in one long sentence or you know yeah. whatever it will be. Without the letter E, yes. Without the letter E, yes, exactly. That's a classic one. You know, and I, but I do think part of what happens is that too often we try to figure out whether or not something will work in advance. And in most creative circumstances, that's actually impossible. You have to try something first, and that's how you'll learn if it works or not. You know, you can't just sit there in your head and be like, well, I don't want to waste time in the future, so I have to solve this problem. It's not going to get solved there. It's going to get solved in the in the canvas in the page in the you know with the clay with the film it, it just it's not going to get solved in your head yeah that's so hard though because i think we all go through that that feeling of my time is limited and i don't even mean on this earth although that is also true but like i have a deadline maybe the truth is that we're more likely to give in to this kind of experimentation or i just don't know if this will work or could this work when we're early on in a project before it's kind of, we can feel its breath on our neck. Because, yeah, I agree, you have to. That's how you discover things. That's how you kind of find that crazy idea. You show something, you know, version one, they say something, you know, that helps you see something else. And version two or version three or maybe version five is great and you wouldn't have that if you hadn't done that wrong version one. But it's really hard to do that when the deadline is looming. Yeah, totally. Especially if you need the money. <laughs> When we come back, more on confidence and how to have it. Listeners, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love to have you rate or review the show. It really does help new listeners to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, please hit the star to recommend the episode to others. All right, June, 
I want to talk about this when it comes to the public facing part of being an artist. And I'm not talking about walking around like a monster, you know, you know, nothing of my work or whatever it is, (laughs) but I do feel like at least in publishing, there's a bit of, you know, there's tall poppy syndrome. Yes. Well, in the arts, sometimes there's the opposite, which is like small bean syndrome, which is like, oh, I'm just my little person making my shitty little work. And, you know, please don't. Mm, mm, I'm going to be self-deprecating. I, uh, you know, they want to sort of foreground. They don't have ambitions. They're not claiming anything for themselves. And I don't know. Why do people do that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Where do you come across that behavior, Isaac? Because I'm not sure I've observed it. Are you talking about people performing this lack of ambition in interviews, on social media? Is it in group Mm. chats with other writers? Where does this happen? Well, it definitely doesn't happen in New York media parties, but I do see it sometimes in interviews and I especially see it on social media. A lot of like, oh my God, I can't believe my book got this good review. And it's like, well, why? Did you think your book was yeah, bad? Right. Yeah. Like, I can understand being grateful. I'm always grateful for a good review, but like, don't you think your book is good? Shouldn't you stand up and say, this is good? I want you to read it. You know, there's a demureness that people expect you to model, particularly if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And it creates this kind of ringing, hollow, humble, braggy thing. And the the whole system just pisses me off, to be honest. I hear that. And and you've made me realize that I've always had a bit of a soft spot for writers who own their specialness. You know, the ones who are willing to say, you know what? I think I'm really good. I think I'm very talented. And I think my books are better than the average book, probably better than most of them. And not very many people are willing to come out with attitudes like that. Off the top of my head, I think Jeanette Winterson has kind of taken that stand, especially perhaps in her younger days. Boy, did she. (laughs) Yes, I'm glad to be confirmed. I associate that attitude with Jamaica Kincaid too, but I really can't think of any specific examples. I think perhaps these happened when I was young and when I was particularly shy or when I was performing lack of ambition. And I'm very conscious that the two people I've named are both women and women from marginalized communities. And that confidence can also be performative. And and it certainly results in people being held to higher standards. Oh, so you think you're great, do you? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, there is something defensive about being like, I mean, I think it's fine. My mom likes it, you know, (laughs) when actually what you want to say is I worked really hard on this. It's really fucking great. You should buy it or whatever. You know, I guess part of why I feel weird about this is that you can be a polite, kind, generous person who makes space for others, who does all of that stuff and still be confident in your work in public. Confidence and arrogance are not the same thing. And I just feel Like culture is really undervalued right now. Mm. We call it content. All art is content, which drives me fucking crazy. But and what we mean by content is that it's something that can make corporations money and you know, maybe gives you a couple seconds of gratification, and it could probably be done just as well by AI. And, you know, I want us to want more than that. I want us to reclaim our space a little bit as artists and say, these things we make are meaningful. They are important. They help you to understand the human condition better, you know, and 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 it has a place in our culture that is meaningful and powerful and should not be disregarded. Yeah. Preach, Isaac. Preach. You know... Oh, I will, Jim. I'm getting my soapbox. <laughs> I'm putting it outside the Port Authority. I got a megaphone and everything. Yeah, well, but you're absolutely right. We do this work, which is not easy and which is poorly remunerated for all kinds of reasons. But a big motivation is that we have experienced the transformative power of art and we know how powerful it is. So, yeah, absolutely. It's important. 
you know, navigating all of this is not the easiest thing in the world, right? You spoke earlier about particularly the early career writer who won't take notes and doesn't really know how things work and thinks they're going to reinvent the wheel and doesn't understand that they're a small cog in a gigantic machine. And I think one of the things that's really helpful as you develop is to develop that circle of friends that you can voice some of this stuff to and and hear them say it back. You know, like there's times when I've been working on a project and I've wondered like, hey, am I being mistreated here? Am I being arrogant? Mm-hmm. Do I know what I'm in doing? Am I just having a fragile ego moment where I can't hear notes? And it's helpful to have honest friends in your corner who can help you see clearly what's going on or even are willing to listen to you kind of vent in a somewhat arrogant way to get it out of your system so that you can write a polite, oh, thank you for those great notes, email back, you know, because sometimes you're just so deep in it, you really can't see clearly. You can't really know who you are, which to a certain extent is what we're really talking about in this week's episode. How do you know who you are, which is really the key to being confident without being an egomaniacal jerk bag? (laughs) Well, I definitely think that having a trusted circle of friends is amazingly useful. But Isaac, do you have any tips for finding that circle? Mm. Because expressing any kind of vulnerability always requires trust. But when you're talking about art, you kind of need to be asking people who have themselves experienced those doubts, who've had their own creative triumphs and fails. You can't just walk into a pizza parlor on 7th Avenue and yell, hey, who wants to help me figure out if my editor is being unreasonable? I mean, in some zip codes of Brooklyn, you probably could, but definitely not universally. So how do you find those people? (laughs) Yeah, in Borum Hill, you just (laughs) throw a brick and it hits a novelist and then you ask them. That's a really, really great question. You know, I'm a naturally extroverted person, so I don't think of it as a thing that I've deliberately done. I also think I'm very lucky that in some ways that the first few years of my career were at the kind of height of literary people being on social media. And so you just kind of meet people very naturally through things like Twitter and Facebook. And then suddenly you message them to be like, oh, you mentioned this book the other day. And then you're talking to them and then you're they're your friends and then you meet for coffee or whatever. You know, that is going away now with X. Mm. you know, kind of crashing and burning and no clear successor. It's kind of unclear what's going to happen with that. I would say that you've just got to find ways to put yourself in the situation where you're going to meet people. That could be a virtual situation, (laughs) you know, like Twitter. That can be a real life situation, like going to readings. It could be that you try to form a writer's group. We're only talking about writers here. And I'm only saying that because I don't know how other art forms do it. You go to gallery openings or something. I don't really know, but it's never going to happen if if you don't put yourself out there. If you don't write to someone whose work you like and be like, "Hey, I really love your work," you know, you you have to risk that vulnerability. Yeah. You have to fake that confidence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> enough to be able to write that email or go to that art gallery or whatever it is. It really is tricky and sometimes it's going to lead to bad experiences. It's not always going to work. But when it does, you'll really see how worth it it is. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this episode, but let me leave you with just one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better, questions you'd like us to address, we really want to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. 
immense thanks, as always, to producer Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. 